0: Okay, everybody. So, welcome back to the long-delayed Secrets of Story podcast. I'm Matt. I'm James Kennedy. And let's play our theme music. All right, everybody. That was our theme music. Hi, James Kennedy. How are you?
1: Great. I think last time I mentioned that my new book, uh, Dare to Know, was featured in The Guardians, uh, best recent fantasy horror and science fiction. Since then, The Financial Times has put it in their Best New Science Fiction. And the Times Saturday Review has said, it's worth the cover price for sheer insolence alone. Essential reading for The Gathering Dark. And and they called it the Best New Science Fiction for October 2021. So please, people, buy Dare to Know. I know some of you have. I've heard from some of you. Thank you very much for that. They love me in England for some reason. In the UK, I'm getting all this good press. Not much in America, but Dare to Know, it's there.
0: Yes. Awesome. Congratulations. So let's go ahead and talk about what we came here to talk about tonight,
1: James. So in an earlier episode, way back, so this is for the real, like, Secrets of Story heads, you and I bemoaned kind of the cultural hegemony of shows that, even if you like them, like, even if they were well-made and whatever, they all had this similar worldview, right? That, like, the world is a merciless place consisting of, like, the dominators and the dominated That you're like a sucker to place your faith in other people's better nature. In which, like, the heroes were frequently assholes, but you're encouraged to feel about them. Well, you know, the main character might be an asshole, but by gum, they get the job done. And the only way to get the job done is to be an asshole. And shows like this are, I think we can all name them. This is Golden Age of TV stuff. Uh, Game of Thrones. Breaking Bad house of cards and specific to you matt the the movie the imitation game which like benedict cumberbatch plays alan turing as a get it done asshole when in fact the real life alan turing as reflected in your script which didn't get made got along with folks and worked very well co- cooperatively correct exactly yeah yeah and so this cultural era and so actually we talk about it earlier and you uh, know let's just play a, a short clip from that previous episode The kind of dialogue like you're talking about is kind of like something that's symptomatic of American pop culture in the past 15 years. It's like the Games of Thronesification of culture in which everything is about antiheroes who break the rules and fuck people over in more and more creative and Baroque ways. So you see it in Game of Thrones. You see it in Breaking Bad, you know, Sopranos. And, I, I you know, Mad Men and I find them. I, I, I watch like two or three episodes of all these things and I get immediately turned off. This cultural era, we're talking about roughly corresponds with the Obama era, right? Like yeah. Game of Thrones started in 2011. Breaking Bad went from 2008 to 2013. House of Cards started in 2013. Imitation, Imitation Games 2014. So I guess it's ironic because at the very time President Obama is saying, uh, let me be clear, there are no red states or blue states. There is the only United States. Let's uh, come together with the Republicans. Let's try to see the better side of our uh, political rivals. The, at that point, the, cultural, the culture swerves completely the other way and says, don't trust anyone. They're going to fuck you over. The only way to survive is to protect you and your family, and everyone else can go to hell. Yes. Yeah, and, no, and, and that, it, is,
0: that is that is very ironic that No Trauma Obama was the only person thinking we could all get along at that point.
1: Um. Yeah. And actually, and there's, and we talked about that briefly in episode four. So okay. this starts at 2830 in episode four. Let me find it. I think that these stories are definitely going out of fashion. Maybe in the, you know, in Obama's era, people were like hungering after this kind of thing. Maybe, but now, now that we've got like d- double barrel, but all the time people say, ha ha, I'm on top. Fuck you you know, from Trump and whatever. Like, I, I think people need to find a radically new kind of story. I think they're going to hunger for this kind of story. I think we're done with fucking Breaking Bad, Game of Thrones stuff, or at least I hope so. Or if not, I, the stuff I'm going to write is not going to be like that.
0: What's well, interesting. I think most people are assuming the opposite. I think most people are assuming that, you know, Trump will usher uh, in a, a world of of dystopian, more dystopian <laughs> writing. But you're right, we're already at max dystopia as it is. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, Obama, ironically, ushered in this era of dystopian writing. Will Trump, uh, you know, <laughs> cause us all to discover our uh, the lost
1: humanity of writing again? That would be fascinating. So I think we kind of called it four years ago, <laughs> back in 2017, because the culture has changed, hasn't it? It has. We've So that's what we're here to talk about tonight,
0: a sort of trend we've noticed.
1: Yeah. Um, and actually, the the one thing that that was kind of like keeping the light alive of uh, of, of kind of or one of the few things of, of this kind of more humane writing was uh, Parks and Rec, um, which is like the ultimate Obama era show. But we'll talk about that later. Let, let's talk about how how things have changed. Like even like with The Walking Dead, like like zombie stories became very popular in like in the in the Obama era. Uh, Walking Dead premiered in 2010. And the zombie genre is inherently anti-democratic like the enemy looks yeah. like other people but they're all subhuman and the big problem with them is that there's too many of them and the only way to deal with them is to kill them um yeah. And it's the same point of view that makes me want to become a prepper that, that makes you say, oh, I've lost hope in strangers and people I don't know. I have a lack of faith in society. Uh, and the people who are smart in zombie movies are the people who are preppers or people who trick the preppers and take their stuff. Um, yeah. and, and that's inherently antisocial, anti-democratic. And so, yeah, four years ago in episode four of this very podcast, I predicted there would be a swing of the pendulum that stories like this would go out of fashion in the Trump era. And maybe the culture is always taking its cues from from the political world and culture zags and politics zigs.
0: Maybe Uh, the culture is always taking its cues from James (laughs) Kennedy.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's true. I'm like the lathe of heaven, but just one dude. Uh, (laughs) Because of the exhaustion of the Trump worldview, I said, there would be a flowering of stories in which people cooperate, they think the best of each other, which villains can be redeemed, in which there is something in human interaction that is beyond rituals of domination and submission. And yeah, as the saying goes, as Kennedy decrees... So it shall be. And the biggest show right now, or maybe not the biggest show, is Ted Lasso. Yeah. Um. Now, Ted Lasso, is it the biggest show? No. The biggest shows are always shitty procedurals on network TV. But Ted Lasso, it's what's being talked about right now in the same way that Game of Thrones is talked about. It's a show that's a bellwether of some cultural movement. Uh, other shows like this, uh, Shit's Creek. Is like this. It's yes. a show that like everyone, person in the know has seen and kind of has a similarly kind of hopeful outlook on life. Yes. Um, I think I've, I've, I've kind of, so I've kind of teed this up. So how has this changed your kind of view on writing? Are there any of your rules that were kind of forged, you know, kind of in the Bush era and the Obama era um, that you look back on and you're like, well, maybe that rule is more reflective of the political storytelling time that i was in and not in like actual storytelling what what is is anything changed about storytelling
0: well let me go ahead and read a post that i wrote in 2010 that i feel okay. like at least you are now saying "Aha, ah, ha that's not true anymore i'm
1: not saying "Aha, ha because i don't play games of domination and submission
0: that's true okay that you are saying matt dear gentle friend matt let uh-huh. us gently and kindly re-examine this post you wrote in yeah. 2010 And you, dear Matt, can go fuck yourself. (laughs) Um, Here's what I wrote. I wrote Storyteller's Rulebook number 47, Embrace Coitus Interruptus. I say one time I was helping a fellow student go over the scene by scene summary of his screenplay, which is called a beat sheet. It was a family drama with lots of arguments back and forth. Just scanning down the list, I said, well, first of all, you need to cut out beat number eight. Beat number eight was Everybody Apologizes. In our real families and relationships, we apologize all the time. That's why nothing really exciting ever happens to us. We diffuse emotional situations before they get too big. In real life, love means that you always have to say you're sorry. If we want to experience big, cathartic emotions, we do it vicariously at the movies, where we see what would have happened if we hadn't apologized. In movies, people never get to apologize, not until the very end anyway. That doesn't mean that everybody has to be a jerk. You can have a bunch of well-intentioned characters, but the fickle finger of fate intervenes to stop them from saying the right thing to each other. Imagine a beat sheet that looks like this. Beat one, father and daughter have a big fight about whether or not to get her an iPhone with mom caught in the middle. It's funny, when I wrote this, I didn't have a daughter and now I've got a daughter who is 10 and wants an iPhone. Anyway, (laughs) number two, the next day, they all apologize to each other. Maybe they will get that phone. Number three, but the day after that, the daughter comes home drunk and they're right back at it. So I say, you don't have to cut out beat number two entirely. But what happens if you let beat number three step on and squash beat number two? Beat number one, they have a big fight. They slam their doors and don't talk. Beat number two, at home the next day, the dad decides to relent and goes to the iPhone store. But while he's there, he sees her across the street drinking with her friends. Now, beat number three, that night he confronts her. He finally mentions that he had gone out to get her that phone, but she doesn't realize it and thinks he was just spying on her. Never let up in movies things go from bad to worse even if nobody wants them to it's not like real life nobody gets to apologize if they want to apologize interrupt them you know and the black swan for instance There is a point early on where Natalie Portman accidentally insults a fellow dancer by prematurely congratulating her on the part that Portman has actually won for herself. It looks like she did it on purpose to rub it in, even though it's just an honest mistake. But the movie doesn't give Portman a chance to apologize. In fact, we never see the ousted dancer again. Apology scenes are death. They reverse the momentum. Maybe Portman's character did apologize off screen, but on screen, the director has a job to do, and that requires him to constantly tighten the screws.
1: Do you still think that this is true? That, that like nobody should ever apologize.
0: I think it's good general storytelling advice that, generally speaking, if you want to have storytelling momentum, it's best not to reverse the momentum of the story and that apologies reverse the momentum of stories. But there has been an epidemic of on-screen apologies recently.
1: O- hold on. But before you go on that, I feel and I've always felt that this is spectacularly bad advice. And it's always been bad advice, even more now, because it's been proven that apologies can be super powerful moments. Um, Even in that that first uh, post, uh, somebody commented, they said, um, arguably one of the best and most iconic scenes in Avatar The Last Airbender is Zuko's apology when he's trying to apologize to Uncle Iroh. Um, Does it work because Uncle Iroh cuts his apology short, says the commenter? Then he says he forgives him, so it's a full apology. I can see how it's important to Zuko's arc, not only admitting he's wrong, he's allowing himself to be vulnerable, something that many characters who project a tough persona struggle with. But it's an apology scene. Um, And they were right then, and they're right now. Apologies are moments at which you make yourself vulnerable to somebody else, I mean, should people always be apologizing to each other all the time? No, but I think that they are essential often, especially if it, to Mark when some character has gone through something and changed and has to make things right. I mean, in Ted Lasso, like, OK, you said there was this epidemic of apologies. When Rebecca apologizes to Ted in the first season, it's a huge moment. When Jamie Tart apologizes to the team, um, it's a huge moment. I don't know if how much you've seen of season two. Uh, when Jamie Tark I'm, apologizes, I, I,
0: I have not yet finished season one. I'm I'm two episodes from the end of season one, but you can spoil away.
1: Okay, Rebecca apologizes to Ted, like, um, and she says, "I'm sorry that I was constantly undermining you." And then he accepts her apology, and there, and you can see how hurt he is when he realizes this, this information, and that you see him kind of man up and accept the apology, and and, and you fully, truly accept it. And Jamie Tart does the same thing. Like I, he might seem unredeemable to you now, but he apologizes to the team in season two, and then he apologizes to Roy Kent about uh, telling Keely that he still loved her um, in season two. And these are st- moments that are full of drama, and they are they, they, they really make. It, I mean, Katra apologizes to uh, Adora in uh, Shira. And it's one of the most important moments. Um, it's when, it's the turning point of their relationship. Apologies, um, the, 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 these are ways that we acknowledge a turning point in a relationship, and therefore it's drama, and therefore, yes, they're totally admissible.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that you can write great apology scenes. You know, it's always hard when you're writing advice on a blog back in 2010 Where I think that I gave that guy a good note when I read his beat sheet of his family drama, where it's like early on in the screenplay, they're going back and forth and it's like, well, you know, we had a little disagreement. Now let's apologize. Oh, now we disagree again. And it was tedious. And I think it's like, well, no, let's ratchet up the screws for a while. Let's build up. I do think that on Ted Lasso, I mean, Ted Lasso, it's an interesting thing because it's all about niceness, which is generally a hard thing to write about. It's hard well, to well, write.
1: It's, it's difficult to write about. However, I think people have a hunger for it because yes, we, I, we've been writing all these times are things that I guess you would say are easy to write about, which is people treating people like shit and some. And I guess that's the kind of thing that you like, kind of encourage in your advice, and you say like, well, this is a way to get good drama. And I've always been against you on this, and I, I think the 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 culture has come around to my point of view on it.
0: I wouldn't say the culture. I would say that. There, I mean, you know, certainly if you want to, you know, your best chance for getting a full-time writing gig right now is still writing on a CBS procedural. But I would right, say like,
1: even like re- reality shows, like the fashionable shows have gone from like shows of humiliation, like American Idol, which regular people get up and try to sing and they're mercilessly mocked and humiliated to shows like the Great British Baking Show, where nobody has an encourage- a discouraging word for each other. And even their shows, baking shows like nailed it, which the whole point is that you're kind of fucking up what you're baking. And that's the charm. Like, I think there is a definite cultural change. Yeah, there is an exhaustion right. with that old stuff, and um, and and so I think these rules. I, I, this is why I want. This is why I pitched this episode to you. I think the rules, which seemed ironclad and it seemed, oh, these are eternal rules of drama, are either were wrong when you said them, or they were right then, but they're wrong now.
0: I wouldn't say they're wrong now. I would say that certain things are evergreen, and I'd say that I mean, certainly, The Walking Dead is still one of the most popular shows on television, but I would say that. There is more of a space opening up for nicer shows. Let's go ahead and talk about a show that I was a big fan of, Steven Universe. Let's well, Let's talk about another. So another thing I've talked about is the general hypocrisy of heroic fiction. This is something where I was sort of on your same side here of saying that things were too dark. Uh, and that they needed to lighten up, I would talk about how storytelling needs to confront the great hypocrisy. I say almost all heroic fiction is founded on the same great hypocrisy. See that guy over there. He thinks the best way to solve his problems is by killing people. That makes him a problem. So let's kill him. Explain to me again who the bad guy is here. In the real world, thankfully, meeting violence with violence is most often seen as a tragic last resort. But on screen, we aren't satisfied until the villains have been turned into chopped liver. Watch, watching people solve their problems through democratic action is boring and i talk about how that's why i yeah, that, prefer that's not
1: true it can be made very interesting uh, um and right. it has been made very interesting no
0: that's what that's that's i was i was speaking sarcastically gotcha um so <laughs> i was saying i mean i was i mean i wasn't being sarcastic, I was just talking about it. it's ironic that most people are like, I would rather not see democratic action. I would rather see some action. I would rather see some fiscal action rather than some democratic action.
1: But do, but- do they actually think that like, like people love Twelve Angry Men, and that's like something about democratic action, right? Like uh, you, you know, there 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 are like, I think there are we can point out probably in every era great stories in which things are resolved by democratic action it's just much easier to write somebody getting shot
0: yes there is a sense that your audience is hungering for that and you can't deny them too long i talk about the movie destry rides again which is all about you know a pacifist riding into town where there's a bandit bullying the town and we're really rooting for jimmy stewart this pacifist to you know come up with ways to defeat the hero the villain through pacifism and then in the end he gives up and he puts on a gun and he shoots a guy and it's very hard not to end the story in that way even though we've been rooting for him to to try, you know, to succeed doing it a different way the entire time. uh, I
1: mean, in in a way, the man who shot Liberty Valance is like that, another Jimmy Stewart Western, but Jimmy Stewart is thought to have shot Liberty Valance, but in fact, it's John Wayne, but it shows that, but, but the movie is on Jimmy Stewart's side because it, it kind of, the movie and John Wayne's character in it kind of both agree the future belong in the West belongs to the Jimmy Stewart's of the world and not the John Waynes of the world. But it's like, still
0: up to the John Waynes of the world to take care of the Liberty Valances of the world.
1: Right. Right. They, they, to, to do this final clearing of the brush. Right. But yeah. I, I think that, that's a movie that kind of like puts the two things in, in interesting, you know, tension and it 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 doesn't take a side. It kind of takes both sides. Says, look, sometimes one thing is appropriate, sometimes another thing is appropriate. Uh, I think like the best drama does that. It has that ambiguity. It says like, well, yeah, sometimes you do got to shoot the guy. Uh, sometimes you do got to get everybody together and kind of vote them out. I, I don't think the best drama is something that takes a stand. That says we shouldn't shoot people. The best drama is something that, that kind of admits the whole multifariousness of human experience and 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 kind of like. It it, it makes you sit inside the mystery, you know, it doesn't like take some explicit stand like that. And so well, balance kind of occupies both poles simultaneously. And that's why it's a great movie.
0: It is. I mean, what I so what I talked about at the time is I talked about how I love Return of the Jedi and how Return of the Jedi is all about like, wait a second, is this whole thing just about wanting to kill Darth Vader? You know, that can't be all that can't be all this is about. That can't be the reason for my spiritual journey. And then I talk about another great movie, How to Train Your Dragon, which is also about going like, Wait a second, you know, are we am I just trying to learn how to kill the dragons? You know, this is there's gotta be more to it than that, you know, as opposed to Harry Potter, which really does just come down to you know, let's go Voldemort or Lord of the Rings, which really does just come down to let's go Sauron or destroy this ring and then Sauron <laughs> seemingly just disappears. And then how, you know, there is no moment in there is no moral rising above in Lord of the Rings or in Harry Potter or in Lost. Well, which, in, Lord you of know,
1: the, in Lord of the Rings, it's interesting. It's not a moral rising above, it's a specific moral failure at the climax because Frodo falls under the power of the ring um yeah. and 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 then it is um uh, it, it is Gollum's place to you know it, he it, who kind of like embodies that aspect of Frodo um and he goes and he you know I think he bites off Frodo's finger and then falls into the lava and and then the ring dies because of that. And that kind of shows, Oh, we were right to keep Gollum around (laughs) because he would do this important thing at the end. Uh, um, But I, I, I mean, I don't think, I I don't think Lord of the Rings is as morally uninteresting as you're kind of glossing it to be. Uh, I I think there, it might be problematic, but it's not, it's not just like, Oh yeah, we killed the guy and everything's okay. I don't th- um,
0: I don't think Harry Potter is that simple either but yeah. I think that I think in both cases that I was a little disappointed in both of those sagas for not rising above it in the way Return of the Jedi did and the way How to Train Your Dragon did so th- I wrote this post in 2011 then shortly after this I saw Avatar The Last Airbender, which just blew me away and I just loved. And it's very much deals with this big moral reckoning at the end of, wait just a second, is this all just really about killing a guy? It's got to be about more than that. It's got to be about spiritually rising above that. And... In a really beautiful way, and really, the last four episodes of that show are we're about to get to the finale, and then they're like, "Wait just a second, we have to do the three pen, penultimate episodes are all about the spiritual journey to deal with the meaning of it before the final confrontation can happen." I feel like one of the key shows in the niceness revolution and uh, a show that very much continues on from Avatar and takes it to another level is Steven Universe. Right, which this I, is
1: a show I have not seen. So you're kind of on your own here, and I'm just going to kind of react to what you're saying.
0: So Steven Universe is similar to Avatar, but it is just the nicest show. It is about a character who is very similar to Ted Lasso, just an extremely nice young boy, and who is, at the beginning of the show, he is living with these three lesbian alien women warriors who are... Um, who have sort of adopted him, although eventually we'll find out the situation is far more complex than that. And the four of them are dealing with these monsters. The four of them all have gems set into their bodies that give them, give them alien powers, give them special powers. And they're fighting various creatures that have broken gems set into their bodies. And they are, I forget what they call it on the show, they are bottling them up. They are sucking them into little spheres of energy and sticking them in their basement. And that is really for the first like 50 episodes of the show, the driving force of the show. Like every episode, it's like, let's find a monster and bottle it up. Well, over the course of the show, each episode was just 11 minutes and eventually there were like 200 episodes. Then the moral world of the universe becomes more and more and more complex as Steven realizes that these are not evil monsters and that these are just broken monsters as they, you know, indeed they're broken gems. And that... They are wrong to be doing this and that they need to be redeeming every one of these broken gems and rehabilitating it and bringing it back out into the world. And that in this original post I talked about with Return of the Jedi and how, how to Train your dragon, it's like, well, you know, we want to redeem Vader, but we have to give Vader a worse boss who is not redeemed. And it's like, well, we want to make peace with most of the dragons and how to change your dragon, but we've got to give them one... Bo- evil boss dragon who is not redeemed and who is killed and they seem like they're going to do that in steven universe they're like we're going to redeem all of these monsters we've been fighting but there's the diamonds who are the four truly evil gems who live back on gem world and they're the truly evil bosses we have to kill but no oh my god no (laughs) everybody on that show is eventually redeemed now one of the things they do on that show though is that the show has really a perfect conclusion. It comes to an epic conclusion after about 200 episodes, wraps everything up really beautifully. And then they just announced there was going to be another season. And I'm like, how on earth can you do another season? Because the show you know, is totally wrapped up. Well, then they did the thing that a lot of people have been doing is that they did the PTSD season where they wow. did... Yeah. Uh, they did a season called "Steven Universe Future," which was the epilogue series to the original series, in which Steven is now older, and he is dealing with the PTSD of all the events of the first series. This now, is Kevin, like
1: old Luke in uh, in the sequels to Star Wars.
0: Yes, yes, and like a lot of things, it is like you know. And there's some similar things with Cora, the follow-up series to. Avatar The Last Airbender, where it's like that original series was for kids, this series is for teens, and in Steven Universe, it was like the same person who was a kid and is now a teen, and then they did similar things with Ben 10, they did similar things with a lot of shows where they did this, and then but in Avatar you had one generation where you were following a kid and then the next generation you're following a teen but you sort of have this more serious show that follows up on the first show that is more downbeat and deals with this question of Wait just a second. Wouldn't that just fuck you up to have to deal with all this shit?
1: <laughs> and... right, right. Right. So I think that's going to lead into our next point. So let's just to put a button on this first point. Like we have this first idea that in these new shows, nobody is irredeemable. Like the rivals of the hero are often won over to the good side, right? And they right. Be- become the good people's advisors. So Shadow Weaver and Katra and She Ra, uh, Roy Kent and Ted Lasso. Zuko and Avatar although it kind of predates this thing and I guess in Steven Universe as well um or even in uh you know Parks and Rec or in The Good Place that you know the person who seen that they're the villain you know whether it's Ron Swanson or Chris Traeger and uh Ben Wyatt when they first come you know to town and they seem like they're going to cut all the programs eventually everybody gets won over to the hero's side and um and and everybody gets along in the end, uh, um, so that's the first thing. nobody's here deal with. It. The second thing is like we have to take seriously the PTSD. We've got to have a depressed horse. I think is the, <laughs> the is, is like the okay, I've never seen Bojack Horseman Neither like, have you know, I. it's about a depressed horse and um and who's in therapy, and that's kind of like the hallmark of all of these new shows. People are in therapy, and there's therapist scenes, right, right? Uh, um, So, but like finish what you were saying about the PTSD stuff.
0: So I could not take Steven Universe Future. My my whole family watched Steven Universe together. And then the whole family watched Steven, well, the whole family watched Steven Universe together twice. And I bailed on Steven Universe Future both times. Because I thought, I'm like, I don't want to see, like, this was a com- totally satisfying saga to me. And one of the reasons why Steven Universe was so satisfying to me is because Steven was so unflappable. It's because Steven was just remained such a nice, sunny, happy guy throughout all of it. And indeed, his nice, sunny happiness redeemed the entire world and redeemed all of these other characters. And because his happiness was impervious to other people's darkness, then... He redeemed them, and I'm like, okay, yeah, and the then, Lasso,
1: like, like Luke Skywalker in a way, I'm uh, um, like Dale Cooper in Twin Peaks.
0: I'm sorry, what are you saying about them?
1: They all redeem the world around them with their sunny, unflappable nature.
0: Yes, indeed. But then, uh, and, and then, we, but then we they we all had sequel two. series. Yeah. Then
1: <laughs> hey, but, but Twin Peaks too, like he get there's like a bad Cooper that's running around. I mean, I know you didn't see season three, and I think it's masterful, but it problematizes. I mean, well, the the first two seasons do end on this awful cliffhanger of like, oh my gosh, Killer Bob got into Dale Cooper, but like it's uh, the but other than that last scene, you feel like oh my gosh, like th- this guy, this guy with his sunny disposition and his ultra competence is going to save the world. Um, it's kind of like what Leslie is. It would be like if we do Parks and Rec. But like twenty years from now, and it's like Leslie Nope was the mayor of Pawnee, and she is just burnt out, and all of her optimism came to shit. And, and yeah, nobody. I don't want to see that Leslie Nope. That's not <laughs> the, that's not the tarot card that she is in my deck. You know what I mean? Right. The, char- the tarot card, like the the characters are immutable essences in a way, and I don't want to see. Boba Fett as a kid crying over his dad because that's not the tarot card he is in my deck the tarot card is oh he's this unflappable you you know taciturn bounty hunter and so if once you start saying oh that one tarot card I'm gonna actually complicate that tarot card it's like no the whole reason that the tarot card works like the you know of the of the unflappable innocent who saves everybody or you know the wise old man i don't want to see the wise old man like ben kenobi when he's a young hothead or or whatever like i i want them to always be that essence of what they are because that's why the character works because it is an archetype and then you say oh but guess what i'm gonna complicate i'm gonna make it real man it's like that's not why i came to you
0: But it's interesting, both times that I chose not to watch Steven Universe Future, I think there was a sense that I was letting my family down, and there was a sense also that I was letting myself down to a certain extent. I'm like, I should have the moral seriousness in order to follow this story into a darker place, and I am not blaming the show for me ditching it. I am blaming myself. It's just not what I want to see, even though I can recognize this is still masterfully written. Uh, and... don't,
1: don't get cucked by Steven Universe. I mean, <laughs> if, if if that's what you didn't like, then that's what you didn't like, and stick by that. You know, um, like it's uh, like there, and also like this kind of like it's a kids show, so it's not about PTSD and all these things. It's about fun adventures. You know, it's an animated children's show about adventuring, and I don't think that any actual living human child would start watching a show that is about PTSD. You know what I mean? And so the the only way you can get anybody to be interested in is one of these things is because it's the exhaust of a show that was good. This is why I haven't watched Legend of Korra yet, quite frankly, because I don't want to see an old Aang because the whole point of Aang is that he's a kid.
0: Yeah, you know, it's funny. When you watched Avatar, you're like, okay, we watch. I watched Avatar with my kids. We loved it. Should we watch Korra? Or, you know, and you said, I don't really want to watch Korra because it darkens the story in some ways. I'd rather watch Avatar again. And I said, oh, yeah, the, the way to watch Korra is first you watch Avatar all the way through, and then you try a few episodes of Korra, and you're like, no, this is darker. This is less exciting. This is not as, uh, this is not Avatar 2 what I hoped it would be. So then you, you watch all of Avatar. You watch a few episodes of Korra. You give up on it. You rewatch all of Avatar again. Then you watch Korra, and you're like, okay, well, I'm actually really good. Really glad I know this story now. But it's not Avatar 2, It's disappointing. Then you go back and you watch Avatar again, and then you watch Korra again, and that's when you realize that Korra is fucking brilliant. And that's when you <laughs> realize that Korra is is equally good. It is just as good as Avatar, and it is insanely brilliant in its own way. Okay. And Not, you're right. I mean, there must be people out there who watched Korra before watching Avatar and then maybe tried to give Avatar a shot and didn't like it. Like (laughs) there must be some people who did that, but that would be, that's just heartbreaking to think that anybody would watch Korra before watching Avatar. You have to watch Avatar first, twice, and then you're ready for Korra. And then you're like, okay, you're like, eventually things do get darker. And, you know, you were saying one of the reasons you didn't want to watch Korra is because you heard that it turns out in some ways Aang was not a good father, which is a very reductive way of saying it. You know, Aang is a great father. You know, it turns out that one of his children is an airbender and the other two are not airbenders. And he unconsciously favors the child who is an airbender. And that is not Just saying like, oh, going to rip your happy ending away. Things seem so happy at the end of Avatar and then he turned out to be a shitty father at the end. Like, no, the story could not be more human and warm and adult and complex and wonderful. And it's exactly the ending that Aang deserves. It's exactly the, you know, fulfillment of a story that he... You're giving him a human life. You're not giving him a happy, shiny people life. You're 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 saying that like Ang then got to give up and lead a fully human life after that, and his non-bender kids are have some disagreements with their father, but they love their father. Their father was loving, right. to them. I, loving I to him.
1: What I mean to say is that Avatar: The Last Airbender, the original series, is very simple, and um, I the the reason that I enjoyed it is because it was very simple in those ways, and I kind of it it doesn't necessarily make something more sophisticated or satisfying if you turn it into a downbeat indie movie from uh 2012 you, you know uh, um and, and so i know it's comp- it, may, it makes it more complicated it makes it more rich and this or that i'm not interested like the more you talk about it the less i want to watch it like watch you. it. <laughs> oh, okay, okay, it is insanely great, and I will it. eventually watch it. Um, but so like one of the hallmarks of these shows, where people are like constantly going through PTSD, because surprise, if you're having an adventure, I guess you're going to have PTSD. So this is something we're going to have to live with for the rest of our lives is that we're going to have some great adventure and then 10 years later we're going to have another thing that's a follow-up in which Indiana Jones is sitting on a therapist's couch saying, I felt really bad about what I did with you know those Nazis. There's often in these shows a therapist or therapist scenes. Yes. Um, in season two of Ted Lasso, um, a therapist character comes around and she kind of complicates and problematizes you know the first season which is like in the first season it's like ted lasso's sunny disposition conquers all the second season is kind of like is ted lasso's sunny disposition you know a kind you know always so great and i enjoyed the second season but it's a mess um and it 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 does not have like the thematic unity and and kind of power of the first season and and so uh, other times you see therapist scenes um like uh, there's a Pickle, there's a notorious Pickle Rick episode of Rick and Morty. And I, we're going to talk, I know you hated it. We're going to talk about it in a second. And I guess like this all, there's like the Bojack Horseman. I guess he's always at a therapist. I, maybe this all started with the Sopranos, right? Like um, you've got like this this mobster, but now he's at a therapist. Isn't that interesting? And I feel, for me, the, I, I see what these shows are trying to do. And it's laudable. Let's destigmatize mental illness. If people need to go to a therapist, they should definitely go. I support that 100%. If the way we can encourage that is to show positive representations of it in media, let's do that. You know, absolutely. That is very laudable psychology, I guess. But I don't think it makes for good drama. Because it's when you have these therapist scenes, it's not two people who have their own messy goals and needs and weird intimacies and power plays who are coming to terms with each other in an organic way. If it's a good therapist, and say in Ted Lasso, it is a good therapist, it's about a technician interacting with a patient in a responsible way. And so the patient is always wrong, and the therapist is always right. Uh, And we're just waiting for the patient to realize the greater wisdom of the therapist. Um, And this happens in Rick and Morty, the Pickle Rick episode, too. In fact, he doesn't kind of take her advice in the end. And uh, was that the case in The Sopranos? Like, the therapist is kind of imbued with this kind of authority, and that's kind of, I feel, makes the scenes inert.
0: Well, I mean, The Sopranos was fascinating because it seemed like w- we would never have watched this show if he was not in therapy because uh-huh. you know he needed he was this psychopathic soulless guy, and then we got to see his hidden soul. We got to see his ironic flip side when he was in therapy, and that's what made the show bearable. But the show, to its credit, grad- and we talked about this a little bit in the inv- in the involuntary episode, is that. The show eventually said that psychopaths should not be in therapy because therapy doesn't actually help you become a better person. Therapy helps you become a more effective person, and psychopaths, when they're in therapy, just become more effective psychopaths. And that Tony's therapist, uh Tony's therapist, then realizes this. Tony's therapist goes to her therapist, and her therapist, played by Peter Bogdanovich, tells her, "You need to stop helping this." psychopath become a better person you need to drop him from therapy and he and she you know and then he gives her these articles about the dangers of psychopaths being in therapy and she reads them she refuses to read them and then she finally reads them and she's like oh my god you're right i have to drop him she drops tony and then the implication of the final episode is that he is desperate for her advice and doesn't get it and her advice would have saved his life and said he gets killed um after journey stops singing don't stop believing because he didn't get her advice and uh-huh. so they were sort of dealing with in that show like okay by the way all this therapy has been bullshit <laughs> and that's right. how the but, show ends
1: but but okay so that that was like what it leads up to but up until then that wasn't the case right kind of like she was kind of the voice of reason and he was kind of like the colorful oddball that you know that has to be brought to heal
0: yeah to it, a certain extent okay
1: <clears throat> okay so uh, i was reading a fantasy lately but the hero keeps checking in with their therapist the entire time and of course the therapist is correct all the time and the hero holds on like a talisman to like the diagnosis that the therapist gave them like even at the very climax that this person is like checking in with their therapist on their phone and it's like really infuriating and the therapist has told them at one point okay you have this condition and from then on the hero is like oh okay i shouldn't freak out this is an aspect of my diagnosis and the diagnosis becomes this bedrock unquestionable thing this talisman that the hero holds on to this gives way too much dramatic power it gives this delphic oracle power to the therapist and they're no longer a character they're kind of like you know even like with the thing you say like oh he's a psychopath so you shouldn't help him like oh we've correctly labeled this person so therefore here is the correct thing that you should do like I, i was helping someone write their college app a few years ago and at the first pass their essay was she was saying, I had all these problems. And then I went to a therapist and my problems were solved because I had my diagnosis. And then the essay ended. Like that was a spiritual journey that this would-be college student Hope would impress the admissions committee. I went to a doctor. They told me what was wrong with me. And that explained so much. Now that was very important that she did get that diagnosis in real life, but that's not a story. And also it gives too much authority to the therapist. And especially as an artist, you're as a novelist as a writer of what human people do you are to be a specialist in the ungovernable in the incalculable in the things that don't fit into the dsm4 and and, and so like when you when you're kind of like giving up too much authority To a technician or a a person who, you know, maybe is very trained in like human reactions and how people act and things like this, but you have your own training, you're an artist, and every time it kind of falls back on, we're going to bring a therapist on and they're going to say the correct thing, I think that makes the the scene inert immediately.
0: Yeah. Now, I agree. Therapy scenes are... Very, very tricky to write. You do not want to have, I have another post about this at some point here where I talk about, yes, I said, at one point I said, Storyteller's Rulebook, audiences hate therapists.
1: And I say- <laughs> but they don't. You- I mean, it, 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 you see them in every single show now. Like, I, like, I, I think it's, the, it, 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 it's, it's deadly, uh, um, but like it, they're all over the place now and I get why they're there. I, I support why they're there. I just don't think it's g- good drama.
0: But this was when I was writing just very short story short book things based on books I'd given notes to. Uh And I say or books or screenplays I give a note to. And I said, one of the best scripts I read had one glaring flaw. The hero's best friend was a therapist and diagnosed his problems with insight. Audiences hate therapists. They do our job for us. It always feels like the writer is inserting himself or herself into the story to tell us what's really going on psychologically. We want to be the ones to figure out the subtext. Everybody loves Psycho, but everybody hates the last scene where the therapist arrives and explains what it all really means. I recommended to that writer to have the friend just be a normal schlub, giving amateur advice, filtered through his own needs, prejudices, and flaws. So, yeah, I think that therapy, I think that ultimately it worked in The Sopranos. Ultimately, she was enough of a flawed character and he was manipulating her to the degree to make those scenes come alive. But Mm. generally speaking, inserting a therapist, yeah, the audience is like, oh, okay, so this is the character who is always going to be right. That is the danger. You never want to have that character
1: so okay let's talk about um this pivotal episode of rick and morty the pickle rick episode yes Uh, i like so it's not cool anymore to say i like rick and morty like it was like five years ago when we started this podcast but you know i have still seen every rick and morty episode and i do enjoy them it's not what it used to be it doesn't feel as in like like Groundbreaking. They they, 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 there's only so many moves that you can make on that chessboard, and they made them, and they made even moves that went off the chessboard in interesting ways. But now they're just, they, they, I see what the chessboard is, and they can only make moves within that. That's fine. Uh, one of the moves that they tried to make that went off the chessboard, which was like, oh, I have this pickle Rick episode. Do you want to explain what happened in that episode?
0: So yeah, so you, you were always really, really after me to watch Rick and Morty. In uh, previous episodes of this podcast, in our own friendship. Finally, I watched the first episode, did not like it, and you were heartbroken, I think it's safe to say, and I was like, sorry, I don't like it. I find the show to be too misanthropic, and then you were like, and then like a couple years later, you're like, okay, you, you have to try it again. You have to watch me seeks is the all-time greatest episode. You have to watch that one, and I watched that one, and I was like, whoa, this is even more misanthropic. I do not like this. I find the show really disturbing and really unpleasant and... I find it very disturbing that anybody likes it. And uh-huh. then you were like, "Okay, I give up on trying to get you to watch Rick and Morty." And then, cut to a couple of years later, we were recording this very episode today, and you said, "I insist that you watch Pickle
1: Rick." So well, no, I the Pickle reason Rick. why is because it is germane to our topic of we a, a sudden proliferation of therapists in pop culture now.
0: Yes, and Pickle Rick was fascinating. I think that I thought Pickle Rick I probably liked the best of the three episodes I saw. You've got these two storylines, one where the family is going into family therapy, and then Rick, who is trying to avoid going into family therapy, turns himself into a pickle and then gets involved in this disgusting, (laughs) horrific storyline involving uh, licking a rat's brain until he can take control of the rat's body and then becoming this action hero who then has to destroy this cartel. And this whole story is going on and, but it's all building
1: himself up from nothing, like from a pickle, (laughs) like sitting in the, in the bottom of a sewer or whatever, he's able to build himself back up to the Rick that he was just by sheer ingenuity. Cause that's what he like relies on. Right. Not like empathy or whatever like that. Just his ingenuity is enough is what he, that's what that's his motto in the world. Right. Like I'm smarter than everybody else and I can solve problems that nobody else can. Correct. Yes. And the, the... the point of therapy is that, no, that's not true.
0: Yeah. I mean, so then he ends up at family therapy, but the whole thing becomes an issue of the whole family basically rejects family therapy at the end is that the family therapist does sum them all up, does sum them all up really well. Yeah, the and, Susan
1: Sarandon who plays a the therapist just says a bunch of true things about the family in a very reasonable tone of voice. Susan and, and-
0: Sarandon who plays the Asian-American therapist in <laughs> what was surely the last, I mean, like this this episode just came out a couple of years ago. Weren't they already not doing that a couple of years ago?
1: It, it was written by uh, an Asian-American woman, uh, um, a Chinese-American woman. Um, and uh, the, I, I don't know what, uh, uh, it was probably like, we've got this star, we can use her. But I think that's probably the last time that that move was possible.
0: Yeah. But uh, it's one way to do therapy is to have the therapist be correct and sort of reveal the hidden engine of the show to a certain extent, as they did with Pickle Rick. And then just have the characters go like, well, screw that. That's the last time we're ever going to a therapist. It was interesting that at one point on The Sopranos... Carmella, Tony's wife, realized that therapy was helping him in some ways. And she decides, oh, well, I want to start seeing a therapist, too. And if it's helping him, it'll help me. So then she says, like, oh, but I shouldn't see the same therapist. I should get my own therapist. So she asks for recommendations and she goes to see a therapist who was also a rabbi. And she starts talking about her problems. And she gets half an hour in and he's like, wait just a second. You're going to pay me with mob money? You can't pay me with mob money. This is evil money. This is an evil thing. This isn't a problem for a therapist. This is a problem for the police. This is evil. I will be happy to be your therapist as soon as you leave your husband and find your own source of income, but I'm not going to accept any mob money from you. Uh And she's like, oh, never mind. So much for therapy. (laughs) And and she walks away. And that that therapist does exactly, you know, and the implication is this is exactly what Tony's therapist, Dr. Melfi, should have done, and mm. this is the only ethical way for a therapist to respond to this family.
1: And well, yeah, that... I mean, if that's if that's the case, then, like, yeah, I mean, the, the, I, that, I I guess I, I'm I'm suspicious of like, and what we see is that the only ethical thing you could have done is X. Like, the whole point of drama is that you feel the tension between two things, like like the like you know like the basis of drama is like Antigone, you, you know, like uh, Cleon says that you cannot bury your 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 uh your your brothers and and, take, and he says I'm going to bury my brothers and, and like they both have equal claims to the right and then we see that play out. You know, but if like something comes down it's like and then we see that the therapist was right. Then I was like this is why it's inert. Right. You know? You're saying y- 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 they shouldn't have done that. Like you're saying, you're describing these things. And I'm like, as soon as you start saying that, yeah, he was right. They shouldn't have done that. I was like, yeah, that, that sounds dumb because that's not drama anymore. Like the, 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 the engine of things is not like, Oh, it's and- drama.
0: It's still drama. If they reject the therapy, if, if the, you know, you can have a therapist come in and be right, like the rabbi was, or like the therapist was in the Pickle Rick episode, if the heroes just totally reject it and walk right,
1: away. Right. But but then like the reader I mean, or the viewer is left in the position of saying, not of saying, oh, I can see Antigone's point of view. And in a way, I, you know, I, got, I hate to say it, I can kind of see Cleon's point of view, too. Um, you know, um, they're just left saying, Huh, they should have taken the therapist's advice. You know what I mean? like If they were good people, they, they would have listened they they, no, they the, the, the viewer is not left in the position of 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 like kind of uh, ping pong in between two irreconcilable tragic alternatives. They're left in a position of saying, "Oh, the therapist was right.
0: I feel like you can I mean, it's just a general question of can you ever have a character who is right? Can you ever have a character who has the ability to step back from this story and see the nature of the story? And the answer is, yes, I think you can, as long as there is some reason they do not shut the story down. And there is some reason for, you essentially have to whisk that character off screen. <laughs> I
1: don't know, I think- You can those, have those them show up for a second. I, I think those characters, yeah, maybe. I guess, the, I think the better solution is like, this character is right because of their peculiar constitution, which also sometimes makes them wrong. You know, like yeah. Leslie Nope is right and wrong for the same reasons. Ron Swanson is right and wrong for the same reasons, you know, because of the kind of person that they are. Uh, um, and, mm-hmm. and that's why they're great characters. And that's why we love the push and pull between them, because we know that the perfect person isn't Leslie Nope. We know that the perfect person isn't Ron Swanson. And we, we need a lot of people in this world that are kind of incommensurable with each other for this to be a complete world. And you, in a way, you know, uh, Whitman is wrong. You don't contain multitudes. You just contain you and the multitudes are outside of you and you kind of have to come to terms with them.
0: Oh, I completely disagree with that.
1: I think Whitman was completely right. (laughs) You contain some, but you don't contain everybody. Yeah. No, that's
0: true. Um, the...
1: You can't become a perfect person. You can't become a person that's like, well, once I read all the right books and I watch all the right dramas and I and I figure it out and I go through the correct moral training, then I will do the right thing all the time because I will have figured out the correct way to be. No, no matter what point of view you're coming from, you're going to have blind spots and you're going to have things that you do wrong because of the kind of person that you are that's going to make you strong in some ways and weak in others. I mean, this is just, you know, I certainly think one w- again.
0: I think Whitman would certainly agree with everything you just said
1: okay you okay maybe like I contain multitudes may, it just sounded too much like I contain everybody to me you know yeah. you don't contain everybody
0: right I mean the quote was do I contradict myself then I contradict myself I am large I contain multitudes I think that's certainly true I think that we all quote that because it's we all know that to be
1: true we've all thought that was true of ourselves we, we also but kind yeah. of like hope it's true of ourselves we hope that we're more than the peculiar weird limited view that we have but it's kind of hard to get away from, like of our, like, there are certain things that you, Matt, can't imagine me saying or doing. You, you, you know, like, and there's certain things that I can't imagine you saying or doing because we like to think that we could be anyone, but we're kind of stuck being ourselves.
0: Right. Impotent. What was it? Impotent? Okay. The word?
1: You're impotent, and you just immediately said impotent.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Impu. No. What? What did? What did the reviewer say? The British reviewer said that your your impudence was it impudence? What was it? insolence insolence yeah insolence. so according to the british you are insolent and all my life
1: i have fantasized about a british person calling me insolent and now it's finally happened so but actually speaking of ron swanson and ted lasso and all this kind of stuff this kind of leads to like another point which is like during the so there was this kind of time during the obama era in which like this kind of nice comedy kind of went out of fashion you know we had things like the american office in which like the the boss is like a ridiculous jerk everybody's you know being at work is kind of hell but you're stuck with these people right, right. um and, and like that's kind of like and comedy had a, a kind of edge of cruelty to it um and but we had these characters and so i think the three characters i'm thinking of are jack dunaghy of 30 rock who is like liz lemon's boss and he's kind of like a a businessman hyper capitalist kind of right-wing guy And then in Parks and Rec, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, who I assume uh, Tina Fey's best friend, uh, um, Amy Poehler's, you know, her show, she also has this kind of alpha male who's kind of her superior, Ron Swanson, who's right wing in a different way. He's a libertarian, kind of this meat eating, you know, hunting, kind of like a more of a blue collar version of right wing, whereas, you know, uh, uh, Jack Donaghy is a white collar version. Right. And then we also have like Ted Lasso, who's kind of like. Well, this is like the sports guy, you you know, uh, but these are all kind of like red state things, but they're all blue state writers fantasies of a good red state person, the kind of red state person who we could tolerate. You know, this is a libertarian, a capitalist or a sports guy, but charming. you you know and and like this sports guy is going to be able to name scorsese movies Uh, um this uh, ron swanson guy that that, you know is going to actually be he's gonna he's a secret the he's duke silver the, the saxophonist and and he's actually like super really nice and accommodating to his friends and like jack dunaghy has lots of things about him that are like secretly charming and it's i think it was this obama era kind of thing in a way of like Let's frantically paper over these actual differences that we have. And in fact, like red states people and blue state people are completely incommensurable. But blue state people keep making up these fantasies of what red state people are like and and trying to live in those fantasies because they want they blue state people want to get along with red state people. They want to say, well, they, they kind of still believe in this Obama dream and the red state people have checked out. You know they, they, and if they, there are no Ron Swanson's, Jack Donaghy's, or Ted Lasso's. These are blue state fantasies.
0: That's interesting. That's, I mean, (laughs) that's, that's saying a lot. But. You're right. You, you see it at the we very were beginning
1: not... of Ted Lasso, all the, the 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 seats change one from one color to another, and at the end, it's like evenly divided between red red seats and blue seats. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> right. Like they, they, they do it explicitly. They're, they 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 you know like oh, okay, well you know like um we we know that you you know hate sports guys. But we're gonna make this guy a really sensitive sports guy, and it's in England and it's soccer, so it's fay enough for you you know blue state people to kind of go along with. You know, it's taken out of the context that we have in our country uh, um, so that like any kind of like toxicity, you know, will be kind of it's going to be people with English accents and people from Nigeria being bros. So it won't seem immediately so uh, off-putting to, you know, a a blue state person. I'm sorry. Go on.
0: (laughs) I think that this I think this is a strong point you're making. I think it's it's entirely possible that. You know, that these shows, obviously, Ted Lasso post hates I guess, well, I mean, even Ted Lasso, I guess, was originally conceived in the Trump era, it, the first season mm-hmm. aired while Trump was still in office. I certainly you could see how you could claim that shows like 30 Rock and uh, Parks and Recreation, how characters like Jack Donaghy and Ron Swanson left us unprepared for the actual horrors of the Trump administration and unprepared for like, oh my God, these people are really worse than we ever dreamed they were, and right. and proud of it. You know, <laughs> there, there's it's not.
1: It's impossible. I'm rewatching all of Parks and Rec with my family right now, and um, it's impossible to imagine the show being made now. Yeah, like it, it is. It is a. It is so of its time. Um, and and it's just like, even though at one point, like Leslie Nope was like, "Well, I, 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 like, I have many you know, uh, politicians I admire, uh, um, you, you know, uh, Nancy Pelosi, Hillary Clinton, Sarah Palin, Margaret Thatcher." And you're like, "What? <laughs> What'd you say?" <laughs> like, like it, there's this kind of like, like broadly economical feminism that they're trying to tap into. But like maybe the people who were writers were gritting their teeth when they wrote that and maybe they weren't. But the fact that they were just able to put that line on the air and it was be plausible enough is, you know, is unthinkable now.
0: Well, at the time, probably white feminism was not an insult yet.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, Yeah, yeah. But but also just there wasn't any kind of like ideological clarity about where we were at, because the whole thing about the Obama era is like the illegitimate papering over and hiding of true problems and differences right
0: why well, would someone agree with that but yeah <laughs> i think i think this is this is all true and it's interesting you i you know ted lasso now is a show that began as trump show is now continuing on as a biden
1: show and it's but I, they, once you know you get strangely enough of,
0: hmm?
1: you know, i mean they have to set it outside of the united states for it to work is yeah. the thing. <laughs>
0: But uh, but it'll be interesting to see once we have a sense of what the Biden era really means. And because certainly it took a long time to understand what the Obama era really meant. (laughs) There was a lot of misunderstanding about that right away. And Trump, I think we got got a sense of quicker. And uh, we'll I, I don't think we have a sense of Biden yet. But
1: I think one of the things that like led to this kind of more forgiving thing, like, you know, Mike Schur is the guy behind both, you know, uh. Parks and Rec and The Good Place, or the person who put his stamp most on it. It's like, I don't know if he was an improviser, but he uses a lot of people who were improvisers. It's like the influence of the kind of the improv kind of aesthetic of like, And not the improv that came out of the unruly, irresponsible, maybe like abusive grifter and wizard and larger in life guy Del Close who founded it, but the improv that comes out of people who learned from him and shaved the rough edges off him and were kind of technicians of what he did, which is kind of like the Tina Fey's and the, you know, the Amy Poehler's and even they are kind of more rough edged than the people who came after them, um, is kind of like Hey, we can all get along. There, there, there's people are different from us, but you, you know, there there's we we can kind of find this group mind together. We can uh you know, like one of the things I I was so crazy in improv is that like, people would get in scenes and they would start arguing with each other. And the teacher would often say, say, stop, stop arguing with each other. That's boring. Why don't you just start agreeing with each other? And in an improv scene, when you start agreeing with each other, it starts becoming a million times better, which is against every instinct of, you know, what a dramatic person would think, you know, as so writing a script, there's got to be conflict and they've got to be arguing about something. But in fact, in an improv scene, when you are agreeing with each other, it, that's when the scene comes alive. And not just agreeing about like, yes, ending, like that, who, what, and where, what they're at. But if you have like two people and there are... Um, complaining and bickering at each other while they're making hamburgers as opposed to a scene of two people who are loving their job making hamburgers together and getting more and more like absurd about how much they love making this job making hamburgers the second scene is always better um, and I, and, it was, and so I think it's that very generous hopeful kind of spirit of improv that comes out of it that kind of infected these shows and um, it's like Parks and Rec originally was supposed to be kind of like the office cruel in its humor that didn't work. And they hit upon this formula that what if work wasn't hell, you know, and then uh, what if everyone looked out for each other more or less and were led by someone who is super competent and goofy like Leslie Knope? Um, And that was precisely Obama era. Like it started in like, I think, 2009 and it ended in 2015. And then came The Good Place, Mike Schurie's next thing. And it's the ultimate Trump era show because it's from 2016 to 2020. And basically it says this Obama's fool's paradise that you're in. It's actually hell. Yeah. You know, <laughs> now go deal with it. You're in the bad place. You, you know, like and basically it's Mike Sure kind of like looking at his own brand of comedy and critiquing it. Uh, um, and, and but of course in the end, he can't get away from himself. He, you know, redeems, uh, um, Ted Danson's demon character. I have a feeling he even redeems. If I remember correctly, you know, the other devil character, uh, 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 played by, I forget what his name. Sean is the name of of the character. I, I forgot. I, I can't believe I can't remember his name because he was Detroit, a second city. So I I saw him like back in the nineties. But he is um, so
0: good. He he. Did you see the Babysitters Club TV show? You yeah, watch
1: yeah. It. so good. Oh, that's another. Uh, here's you know uh, a nice show. You know, I so I I haven't seen season two. I've seen season one. But there's like scenes of like it's very much an air to. I, I maybe unconscious or consciously to the Mike Sure like niceness revolution because like there's even a scene in which like one of the babysitters is taking care of this kid who is transgender I think and then like they have to take the kid into the hospital and like the doctor I think like uses the wrong pronouns and like the the babysitter says no 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 you got it you got to don't misgender you know this kid and 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 then like and like and it, it's, it's it's like this you know big moment of standing up for stuff and it's like this is a uh, going from like that moment to like think back to only like 10 years ago in which leslie nope is not going to say whether she's for or against two gay penguins marrying you know what i mean like <laughs> like the the cultural you, you know uh um, the the cultural things have, have changed so quickly and, and so completely in in ways that i support um but it's 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 kind of and i think like one way to kind of like some unifying theme over is like well let's all just be super nice and but like the kind of like Th- that does mean like the kind of cruel or kind of like Gen X y kind of edgy comedy is definitely completely out of fashion now.
0: Yes. I was, I only brought up Baby Sisters Club because Sean from The Good Place shows up in a very humorous role in the Baby Search Club. But, uh, um, Yeah, no, I think I think talking about The Good Place as the ultimate Trump era show is fascinating because, yeah, it's the whole conclusion of the first season is that all of our attempts to be nice and all of our attempts to fit in with everybody else only reveals that everybody is damned. Everybody is in the bad place. Everybody is either roasting in hell or a demon on the entire show. And that is Trump. That is what it was like being in Trump's America and then they have to find a way out of that and at one point they're all like okay let's not die and go back to live see what our lives would have been like if we hadn't died and that doesn't solve anything yeah yeah. (laughs) they find that the problems continue they all have to die again all make their way to the good place and then they find out no the actual good place still isn't that good it's still very problematic yeah. Well, okay. So we've been, we've covered a lot of ground today. You had said, you know, we don't have much to talk about today. You know, we're going to be all done in 45 minutes. I don't know how we're going to get a whole episode out of it. I guess it'll be short. And I'm like, James, are you new here? Where what, <laughs> <laughs> what have you been for the last six years? Because that's not how we do things. We talk for a long time. We've been talking for a long time. I think we've covered a lot of great stuff. It's, Sort of more far afield. I think we've made some big leaps, and then not circle necessarily circle back around to finish our original points. But I think we've got a good. I think we've got a good media episode here.
1: Uh, um. So yeah. I, I, but so I. I think this one is a different episode than usual because we're kind of talking about broader cultural currents, which we usually don't do.
0: Right. Usually, yes. I think. Oh, I think oh, what we've oh. discovered in this episode is that we've been talking about them more than we realized.
1: Right, right. Like, I, I think like, we, like we've kind of been laying down these rules like, well, this is what a good story is like. And this is kind of like geometry, you know, and then maybe I've been saying, oh, there are other geometries, you know, but like maybe like all these rules, they're just kind of dependent on the psychological needs of, you know, how people are feeling at the time. And now since so much as time has passed, since you originally laid down the rules, we see how kind of mutable they are depending on the differing psychological needs of the audience at any one time. Well, people I mean, what people to apologize now? People have gone. We've we've been we've been under the thumb of somebody who, for four years, refused to apologize for anything, and now people want to see somebody on a TV screen apologize.
0: Yeah, that is true. That is very much true. Well, let me go ahead and get into something which I should not get into here because it opens up a whole another thing. But in case I find myself wanting this at another point in the episode, let me go ahead and say it. Okay. Well, I mean, all this gets into. This is something I was aware of. When my blog began in 2010, I was aware of what had already just happened in terms of I wrote a whole post about how during the Clinton era, when he was saying, we should listen to everybody and I feel your pain, that was the signature quote, you had all of these shows that were all about, like you had these movies and TV shows like Silence of the Lambs, where it's like you have to engage with evil people and listen to them very carefully and had all these shows like Profiler where it's like, we're going to you know, create profiles of these villains. And then as soon as Bush got elected, a lot of those shows were gone. They were off TV. And instead, they were replaced by shows like CSI or House, where they the heroes of both CSI and House and their pilots go about, oh, I don't listen to the people ever. I never talk to people. I never listen to them. They'll just lie to you. You have to pay attention to the evidence. And so you had this rise of empiricism with yeah, the rise of like, uh, Bush. Yeah.
1: Yeah, this is very much like you know. Uh, we know that those uh, those those WMDs are in Iraq. Don't listen to Saddam telling you that they're not there. Don't listen to these weak Europeans who are saying we can't find them. We know that they're there. Uh, yeah, it, 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 uh, um, and this is also kind of like yeah, the yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head here.
0: Right. So so I was aware when I started my blog in 2010 that, you know, that the move from Clinton to Bush had caused changes in how we tell stories. And I was aware that it may change again at the time I was writing this. But I was (laughs) I was obviously not as aware of the degree to which I was mired in the morality of my own time. And that that was changing. And I think we have sort of teased that out today a little bit.
1: I really hope that you keep that in because I think that is the, the, the capstone of the episode right there. Yeah. This kind of mutability of, uh, I think you, you put it really, really well there. Like the, the, these rules that we think up are kind of always contingent on large scale, like social uh, phenomena that like, we don't even understand when we're in them. Like, I don't think Mike Schur set out, you know, or, or, or Greg Daniels or whoever, like, explicitly had a program to say i'm going to write this kind of show i don't know maybe they did you know i mean mike sure is much smarter person than i am you know he probably did look at the world around him and say it should be different or i i want to i want to support this particular way of looking at the world but i have a feeling a lot of us are just kind of caught up in the current and we just kind of write what's around us right And, and and then we falsely think that's those are the rules and then that's how you end up being somebody who gets left behind because you falsely kind of think, oh, but no, it should always be done this way. People should never apologize. And then you're wondering why all these young hotshots are writing scripts in which people are apologizing and, and those are really successful.
0: Right. Yeah. Certainly I totally agree with you. I think that I think that we are all as artists saying things about our own era that we don't realize we're saying, and maybe we shouldn't realize that we're saying. But that we can take a step back later and see. When I was a film student at Columbia, I was always saying the wrong thing. Throughout my entire life, I've always said the wrong things. And sometimes I would get to talk to filmmakers and I would say things like, okay, you're sort of a filmmaker of this school. And and then people would always just take tremendous offense at that. And nobody wants to be told like, "Oh, you're you make films like this other current filmmaker, or you're a <laughs> member of this school, or you're a member of you know." This they want to think of they contain multitudes. They want to contain multitudes. <laughs> They're like, "What? Don't tell me I'm like you know like if I want if I'm gonna be like anybody, tell me I'm like Godard, tell me I'm like Truffaut, <laughs> tell me I'm like you know my idols. Don't tell me I'm like you know Wes Anderson." <laughs> like,
1: <laughs> Yeah, also, yeah, nobody, everybody wants to think that they're infinite. I I think, like, my kind of critique of Whitman is still kind of dead on. Like, people want, the reason everybody quotes we contain, I contain multitudes is because that's everybody's fantasy. Um, But that's not the reality. We contain about two or three.
0: (laughs) All right. Okay. All right. Let's go ahead and wrap this up. So, James, you are, uh, I forget whether you either have been praised by the British for your insolence or for your impotence. I forget which one, but either way, congratulations. Insolence!
1: And... <laughs> you are the one who is insolent now.
0: Okay, James, this has been a good episode. Thanks for coming out tonight. We will uh, try not to have so long a break before our next episode. Uh, and good luck with everything you're working on.
1: Uh, thank you. And uh, I, I think the, the audience should know that what we're saying right now is after like an 90 minute talk about other stuff, including dare to know and another big uh, fight. So uh, (laughs) if if, if you, if you were afraid that we didn't fight enough in this episode, don't worry. We did.
0: (laughs) And you may get to hear it at some point. We'll see.
1: (laughs) All right. Good night, everyone. Okay. Good night. Bye.
0: Thank you for listening to the secrets of story podcast. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on the Secrets of Story podcast in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. Find out about James's novels, Dare to Know, and The Order of Oddfish, and more at jameskennedy.com. Our music is by Haddon Kime, our logo is by Jessica Friday. See you next time.